welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 71, recorded on May 13th, 2020. Now open AWS work from home region. Good evening, Peter, Ryan, and Jonathan. How are you going? Good. Good evening, Justin. Well, uh, you know, the uh, week has been fun. Uh, there was a summit yesterday. I don't know if you, you caught that or not. Uh, wasn't wasn't too thrilled. How many people <laughs> showed up? I don't know. I, at least one. <laughs> at least one. I mean, I, I went and clicked into the web interface, and I clicked around to see what it was like, and then I bailed out because I had things to do. Uh, but uh, and then uh, Jonathan took my, over my duties for live tweeting it, which was uh, which was fun. So how was that, Jonathan? Uh, it was kind of lonely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the only one there. Yeah. Uh, I think if there been some more interesting stuff to talk about, but mostly it was just a recap of how wonderful they are and and some uh, customer showcases and things. So and they made it very clear that it was a focus on learning for the summit. Yeah, which we kind of knew going into it, and that's part of the reason why we don't typically do predictions for summits uh, for the exact reason, because they typically have maybe one announcement, if anything, uh, and they're not always talked about it on the main stage, and uh, unfortunately, that's kind of what happened this time around. <laughs> so we, uh, depending on how you shake this, though, I do think I win either way. <laughs> so we we basically said that we were only going to cover the keynote, and then you made the argument that we should just cover the entire summit in the predictions. And so the way I, if I, if I do the math on this, so if I just count the keynote, uh, I win on COVID crazy growth numbers, uh, as out of the box, because he talked about the crazy amount of video content that Amazon was pushing, uh, related to the increase in video streaming. Uh, so, you know, I think that's a win for me on that. Now you argued we should count the entire summit. And I said, okay, fine. We'll count that argument too. So that pulls in Macy, which they announced late in the day, about 4.45, uh, for your improved DLP tools for S3. So I see why you did that. I do see it. You're not fooling anybody, Jonathan. <laughs> but then but then that also brings in the price cut for EC2, S3, and networking they did. Yeah, uh, which before uh, the stomach started there. <laughs> yeah, it was same, the same time frame within 24 to 40 hours. So I feel like either way I win. That's how I see it. But I mean, what do you guys think, Peter and Ryan? As clearly you guys lost. But there's no argument about that. I think we should start the clock right after the keynote and stop the clock right before the price cut announcement. And then we all tied zero, zero. <laughs> That's fair. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Overall, it was, a, it was a definitely a very sad showing for uh, the prediction show. Uh, we missed all of our honorable mentions. Uh, Peter missed in big way. You missed on submarines. I mean, I was so bummed about that one. Uh, and then your know, caricature of Larry Ellison didn't appear. There was nothing on that. And then Ryan, you know, as much as I wanted that Docker exec based debugging, it just didn't happen for you this time around. So sorry about that. I'll just make this. I'll save these predictions for for reinvent. Yeah, for for a later show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, keep keep them in your back pocket. Eventually, they come true. Right? They have to. Yeah. I did try to give you like a really a really far stretch, and you were like, even you were like, I can't, I can't make that argument. Yeah, because uh, you have, you have more integrity than I do. Because uh, <laughs> I said that security code scanning service similar to Code Guru. Well, they did expand Code Guru to support Bitbucket. Uh, so I was trying to give that to you, but you said even you could. Yeah, yeah, denied. Yeah. So and then they they did actually did not mention uh, the number of new features for the year so far. Uh, they only mentioned total number of features. So even our tiebreaker busted us out. So. It was just a, it was a lot of goose eggs here on the uh, Summit Prediction Show. So I'll take my victory and we'll move on. <laughs> well, if Ryan's going to be a regular on the show, then he should uh, probably get to, to log some 
predictions for the year like we did at the beginning of the year. Mm. Oh my God, you could predict things like a pandemic. There's going to be a pandemic in 2020 and the world's going to go to crap. And he would like win. It would be ridiculous. I mean, like, I, I hear you. I do. Maybe we'll do a, a second half. Like, what else could happen this year and add to our predictions? Maybe add a, another two to each of our predictions and then he can add five. So, I don't know. I can also just maintain my duties as, you know, judge, jury, and tiebreaker. Yeah. At least until next year. Then you're yeah. on the clock. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about those new announcements real quick uh, before we kind of get into other stuff because we're talking about the summit first thing up here. So first of all is the uh, the enhanced Macy uh, capabilities with Amazon Macy now available with sustainable reduced pricing. Uh, I love how they call that sustainable. <laughs> uh, Macy, of course, is a fully managed service that helps you discover and protect your sensitive data using machine learning to automatically spot and classify data for you uh, in your S3 buckets. Uh, apparently, Macy customers told them that there were some things they liked and some things they didn't. Uh, mostly the fact that their firstborn child was required to pay for it uh, for any amount of reasonable data. Uh, and to address these asks, they're releasing a new version of Macy with simplified pricing and enhanced features. Uh, so now you'll be charged in a couple different dimensions. The first one being you'll be charged based on the number of S3 buckets that are evaluated and the amount of data processed for sensitive data security jobs. Uh, this new tier pricing allows you to reduce prices by 80% at the lowest tier and up to 90% discount on the highest tier of data volumes. Uh, there's also several new features to this, including expanded sensitive data discovery, including updated machine learning models for PII and customer-defined sensitive data types uh, using regular expressions, because who doesn't love a good regular expression? Uh, multi-account support by Amazon organizations, kind of built in now. Full API coverage for programmatic use of services with AWS SDKs and AWS CLI, now available in 17 regions. A new simplified free tier and free trial to help you get started to understand your cost before you invest a small child uh, or the GDP of a small country. And a completely redesigned console and user experience because who doesn't love a good console? Uh, and then if you are, uh, you know, in the past, you had to tie this pretty tightly into S3 backend using S3 data events. Uh, you no longer have to do that uh, from CloudTrail. So you now have that set cost savings available to you as well. And there's now a continual evaluation of all the buckets issuing security findings for any public bucket, unencrypted bucket, and for buckets shared with or replicated to an Amazon account outside of your organization. Uh, also, the anomaly detection is now available to you. So if there's some type of uh, exfiltration event that's out of norm, uh, that will now be caught and alerted to you via guard duty, integrated into Macy and all available to you today. So this is a pretty great announcement for a lot of companies who've been looking for this capability. Uh, they did add this little extra little nugget. Uh, they did say the release of Macy remains optimized for S3. However, anything you can get into S3 permanently or temporarily in an object format supported by Macy can be scanned for sensitive data. This allows you to expand the coverage of data residing outside of S3 by pulling data out of custom apps. Now, if you remember, we've been talking about RDS export to S3, and we've been talking about other exports to S3, and now that makes a lot, a lot of sense uh, when you can now scan that data with Macy and identify your PII data. So uh, I think we're still looking for a larger DLP solution coming down the road, but this is the baby steps to get there. It's funny, I was reading today about how um, the, a, a sudden change in behavior between March and, and today is, is throwing off a bunch of uh, machine learning models. People have, people, work, people have different access patterns. People, the traffic's uh, all, all different. So many things that, that we monitor and use to, to build models on in the world are completely messed up because of the last two or three months of activity. So I, I wonder if Macy's going to sort of go, ah, everyone's accessing data in the bucket and they haven't been for months. You know, what's, <laughs> what's, <laughs> all those home IP addresses now that are hitting the buckets? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I think the the 80% price cut is the new way of announcing that a product is GA. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, because Macy's one of those interesting things. It was an acquisition that they sort of rebranded in a very sort of 
light way, I guess. Like it was very obvious this is not an Amazon product. The console experiences were different. The integrations were non-existent. And then it was, you know, super expensive on top of it, which made you think that it just wasn't designed for scale or to be, you know, like maybe they were trying to reduce usage by keeping the cost high. So this is these all these changes are like we just redid everything is what it looks like to me. So it's it is it I find that, you know, funny and I don't know if that's even Amazon, I guess, makes mistakes. GA. Yeah. Well, I, GA. I've, I've been hearing for the last yeah. year and a half that, that fundamentally Macy wasn't scaling the way they thought it was going to, and they were going to have to do a major rewrite on it in the back end. So that rumor has been out there for a while. So I definitely think this is the long-awaited fruition of that effort that started about 18 months ago. So, so that makes GA Gen 2, right? That's yeah, this is really Gen 2. <laughs> <laughs> it's Gen 2. It's more secure. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> Uh, the next announcement that was uh, somewhat related is the EC2 price reduction. Uh, this is for EC2 instance savings plans and standard reserve instances. Uh, this price reduction on EC2 uh, allows you to basically reduce your costs anywhere from 1% to 18%, uh, depending on what you were previously paying for an RI or savings plan. Uh, they are across all of the C5, M5, R5, uh, in the NA and D variants, as well as the T3, T3A, Z1D, and the A1 instances all available to you. Uh, an example of savings for an M5 instance family with one-year commit can save up to 2% in North California uh, or 16% on a three-year deal in a different region, 16%. There are some shenanigans, though, I have to say on this one because they've been pushing savings plan as this great new flexible way. Uh, but if you didn't do the instant savings plan, you're not getting the savings. So if you just want for the generic, I'm paying by CPU hour, uh, you're not getting these savings, which I think is kind of a bummer and really kind of negates their whole argument for using savings plan in that way. If you had just switched over to using savings plan, but uh then it it's one of those things where this is a hard lesson on how you know maybe their new price cuts aren't going to be for you or applied to you and if yeah and if you're if you're hemming and hawing and considering whether or not to move over this is just going to be more evidence that you shouldn't so i'm I'm a little confused on why they did this it seems like they're sort of shooting themselves in the foot if they want to move people over to the savings plan okay no one else wants to say anything is the volume better i did my part did you did a good job you're not talking, Jonathan. We can't hear you. I see your lips move, but I don't see it. There he is. Your lips, my lips move, but nobody hears what I'm saying. It sounds like a famous lyric to a song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other price reduction was the AWS inter-region data transfer price reduction. If you are in uh, Brazil, Bahrain, Cape Town, or Sydney, uh, you have seen a significant reduction by about uh, 20 to 25%, depending on the region, uh, for your transfer between regions. Uh, so if you are Sometimes re- somehow replicating data to one of those places, like our friend Ian in Sydney, uh, you are now much happier with your data transfer bill. So there you go. It's another nice uh, cost saving. So overall, those are the big three announcements from Summit that uh, are going to help you out there in the field. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get a, an amazing uh, Matt Wood passionate attempt to pe- have people love SageMaker. Well, moving on to our main show. Uh, the first one up is Jedi. Jedi has gone full nuclear battle at this point. Uh, Microsoft is throwing barbs. Amazon's retorting. It's a fantastic world if you're into a cloud drama. I just have to put it out there. Uh, Amazon has filed a, sec- a second secret protest with the DoD about the Jedi contract. Uh, the protest hasn't been made public yet, but Amazon's Drew Herdner, communications chief, in a blog post described it as a fatally flawed on all six of the technical evaluation factors by the DoD. Uh, after AWS won the state of order on the Jedi contract, the court ordered the DoD to revise the proposal. And AWS contends that the DoD amended the Jedi solicitation for a key part of the contract that deals with pricing scenarios for online cloud storage. The amendment came after the Court of Federal Claims ruled that the DoD's evaluations of this factor did not comply with the contract's requirements 
and means both AWS and Microsoft can submit revised proposals. Uh, AWS claims the new language is ambiguous and has been unresponsive in the multiple requests from, the AW, from uh, AWS for clarification to the DoD. And Amazon is asking for the DoD to consider more than simply the one technical evaluation factor. Here with a quote uh, from Herdner from his blog post. Because the first issue the judge reviewed was sufficient to issue the injunction against Jedi, she did not need to address the many other issues raised in her complaint. The DoD initially said they'd correct the evaluation, but only this one flaw. We objected to that approach because it's likely to lead us back to the same situation if the DoD doesn't also rectify the other flaws. Microsoft responded uh, in kind with a lovely blog post where they said, This latest filing, filed with the DoD this time, is another example of Amazon trying to bog down Jedi in complaints, litigation, and other delays designed to force a do-over to rescue its failed bid. And now Amazon is at it again, trying to grind this process to a halt, keeping vital technology from men and women in uniform, the very people Amazon says it supports. Which then uh, Mr. Herdner responds back with, Microsoft is doing an awful lot of posturing. We understand why. Nobody knowledgeable and objective believes that they have better offering. And this has been further underscored by their spotty operational performance during the COVID-19 crisis and in 2020 year to date. Whew. Shots fired. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like caricature of someone else on the next... Uh... Next summit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the Jedi, uh, the Jedi battle is uh, heating up uh, continually here. Uh, I read, a, I read an interesting article that said that'd be about it's about forty to fifty billion dollars in future contracts that Microsoft might win over Amazon because of the Jedi contract awarding. So I see why they're now fighting a little bit heavy. It's not about the DoD as much as about that future business they may miss out on uh, because they miss out on this deal. So interesting times. We'll continue to watch that very, very closely uh, as I'm sure it's going to continue to heat up uh, publicly and in the courts. Moving on to uh, Amazon announcements that were not part of the summit. Amazon and Microsoft actually now announcing that all their employees are going to be optional to work from home until at least October uh, under new guidelines they published. Um, basically, they, Amazon had a statement here to GeekWire. Uh, employees who work in a role that can effectively be done from home are welcome to do so until at least October 2nd. We continue to evaluate the situation update this page as needed. Uh, this is particularly difficult for companies, though, that rely on Amazon.com and AWS uh, for business, especially restaurants and hotels near South Lake Union. Uh, and so this will have large impacts on both Amazon, uh, the companies in their area, as well as their workers as they continue to go work from home. And Microsoft has also announced the same thing. So that's a huge amount of uh, workforce in Seattle that will not be commuting for quite a while. Uh, and we'll be in this new reality. So I think we are just seeing the beginning of really large, long-scale work-from-home policies coming out from employers across the country. It'd be interesting to see the positive effect because those people are still going to be buying coffees and buying lunches. They're just going to be buying them from somebody else. That's true. We will continue to keep an eye on this COVID stuff and how it's impacting technology and the world of cloud and the, and our vendors and friends. Uh, but, you know, the uh, Amazon uh, Code Guru, Guru Reviewer uh, launches a new, more cost-effective pricing model. Uh, so we talked about this when it got announced at reInvent. So first of all, uh, Code Guru uses a terrible model where they charge you four lines of code. Uh, and so basically for every 100 lines of code, I believe it's something like 75 cents where they basically analyze it. Uh, this is... a Poor incentive for most customers because it encourages people to write more lines of code <laughs> uh, as an incentive or write less lines of code, even though it might not be the right thing to do uh, because you're paying for it. Uh, but one of the things we talked about was if you did a pull request or you did a, a large uh, fork and you wanted to re-merge into the base, that that would be all of your code basically being rescanned. Uh, and so Amazon heard that feedback at reInvent and probably from people like us who bitched about it. Uh, they basically now make it so that you only pull, you only charged for the code that's changing in the pull request. I uh, mean that you're no longer double paying for the code to be analyzed uh, numerous times. So that is a grand, fantastic improvement. I'm glad to see that one. I still would like them to come up with a better pricing model than build per line of code. Um, but uh, yeah, 
baby steps. I wonder because process time, like you start start thinking about alternative uh, methods of you know pricing, and so it's like you know compute time, process time, but then it becomes subjective. So like at least this is a very finite in the user's control. Method. Yeah, but so would be you know, this number of user, you know, um, per user license fee. And if you want this, you have to be one of these particular users. You do it per repo fee. You could do, you know, different, there's all kinds of ways you could do this that are different. I know what it should be. Charge per identified defect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, some developers would get fired. for me to use. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, I'm with Ryan. I think I think they should charge per gigabyte second, basically, just like Lambda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's CPU and memory usage should analyze the code, and that's what you should pay for it. But yeah, that's just yeah. me. Maybe a slight upcharge to, to cover the cost of developing the service and running the service, but effect, effectively, it should be billed um, based on you know, the resources assigned to the task. Amazon EKS is now supporting Kubernetes version one one six. Uh, this comes seven weeks uh, from the announcement of 115. Now, if you remember in 115, they talked about that they had made major infrastructure investments to start moving these releases through the pipeline much faster. Uh, so seven weeks is definitely better than 114 to 115 was, uh, but still not quite where we would like to see it, I think, from a no-role Kubernetes world. But again, it's a good progress in the right direction. And so hopefully we'll start seeing that continue to speed up as they work out the kinks of their new process. Uh, for those of you who are not following along Kubernetes 116, uh, there are several feature enhancements, including the volume resizing support in beta. The Windows Group uh, MSA feature is now in beta. The finalizer protect for service load balancers in beta. And the custom resource definitions and admission webhooks are now generally available as part of 116. Uh, do be aware that 116 has several API deprecations in Kubernetes. And so you do need to ensure your application and add-ons are updated um, or your workloads could fail. Uh, this also ends the official support of 113. Uh, and will be deprecated on June 30th, 2020 in EKS as they only support three versions at a time. And so do get those upgrades going on your clusters today. It's so funny because I, we work with a lot of customers who are pretty leading edge, but I have a feeling that the, uh, the deprecation is going to be more of an issue for customers than the, uh, you know, uh, not quick enough to get the new, the new version out. Yeah, I mean, as long as you're not using some of the more, you know, cutting edge service mesh and Knative and those type of features, um, I think the, you know, being on the latest cutting edge isn't really necessary and you really just want stability. So I, I think we even see in the Google world where GKE, you know, there's, you can be on the cutting edge, which is the most current version, but then the more stable versions are typically two or three versions back um, anyways. And so I think you're kind of right on that. Uh, in addition to uh, supporting 116, they are also now making it easier to create clusters and manage them in the AWS console for those of you not using infrastructure as code. Uh, this is a new wizard that simplifies the creation and provides additional information about cluster components. And they've also redesigned the cluster management pages with a new tabbed layout, which makes it easier to understand and modify your cluster components, uh, which having used the EKS cluster management console on AWS, I I'm glad about this because it was a bit of a mess. They tried to uh, take a lot of the ECS concepts and make them translate to EKS and it doesn't quite work. Uh, so it's good to see some more EKS-specific uh, organization of those pages. I've never seen the console for EKS. It's always been Terraform. I see it occasionally. Somebody. Yeah, yeah, someone's happy. Someone's happy out there, especially Somebody's companies you know, who are trying to get started with EKS. Um, you know, 
spinning up an EKS cluster was a bit of a science before now, or maybe a little bit of art in there as well. Uh, now I think it's more of a wizard and something much faster to get kind of a quick POC going, which I think is a big benefit for them. I, they've lost a lot of bake-offs with GKE just on that alone, how simple it is to spin up and down a cluster, even though at the end of the day, that's the simplest part of running Kubernetes, but that's where they lose. Uh, so glad to see a wizard. I think that'll help a lot. AWS IAM is introducing an updated policy default for IAM user passwords, uh, which I have to say, thank goodness, because <laughs> the number one problem with every new Amazon account is that this default password policy that was there was garbage. And all of the lovely security vendors out there like Fugue and Cloudsploit and Prisma, uh, Redlock, uh, all basically will tell you right away that your default IAM policy is insecure and not uh, in good standing of the CSA. And so they have now set up the new default IAM policy, which will go into effect on August 3rd. Uh, will include the requirement of a minimum of eight characters, includes a minimum of three of the following character types, uppercase, lowercase, numbers, and non-alphameric symbols, and cannot be identical to your AWS account name or your email address used in the process. Uh, if you have never set a policy, there are a couple things to be aware of. Uh, if you have no password policy, uh, your account will be upgraded to the new policy standard on the third, uh, but you will not be forced to use it until your password expires or is changed manually. Uh, if you have a password policy today, there will be no change for you at all. They will not override your policy, and so you're in good shape. And if you have uh, automation workflows that leverage your passwords uh, that don't meet the requirements or don't have a password custom policy, uh, you'll need to fix this prior to August 3rd, or else those automations will break. Uh, so definitely take a look at that before that happens. I wonder how long it's going to be before they require MFA. It's, it's fairly commonplace anymore. It couldn't be fast enough, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I, wish, I wish it was in this list as well. It's got no excuse for it anymore. I mean, either you've got federated login with MFA, or you've got, everyone's got a phone, everyone's got a computer, otherwise not using the cloud. So there's, there's no excuse to not have MFA. I mean, I feel that way about encryption at rest and TLS enablement on these services now too. I wish they all were default secure mm. um, and you had to make choices to make them unsecure because I think that's where you start having some gaps where people think they're doing the right thing and they're really not. Where if you were giving them defaults that were secure and capable, then I think you get a better outcome. Yeah, agreed. Well, moving on to uh, other small devices, including uh, IoT devices, uh, Amazon has announced a 90% price reduction for AWS IoT jobs uh, globally. So this is for all users of IoT jobs. Uh, this basically moves the pricing for remote actions, and remote actions could be things like telling a, an IoT device to upgrade or to send data or to do some other function. Uh, used to be three cents. Uh, per 250,000 events. This is now reduced to a ten, uh, three tenths of a cent uh, for the first 250,000 actions and to a 15th one thousandth for over 250,000 actions a month. I think my decimals are correct on that. Uh, don't don't at me if I was wrong. <laughs> but uh, IoT device jobs enable customers to trigger remote actions on one or more of their IoT devices when connected to the AWS IoT core service. And these savings, again, are global. So that's a pretty big savings for if you have a large fleet of IoT devices uh, that need to basically get updated, managed, taken care of, told to start jobs, stop jobs, return to base, um, all the things that you might have an IoT device do. Uh, I think this is great for those people who are not me, unfortunately. This has to be one of those things where they priced it to get some feedback early, but they didn't want a whole like thundering herd of IoT devices. So, because this is a huge price cut. So, it'll, I mean, I mean, even, even three cents for, for 250,000 actions is, is nothing, really. Doesn't seem that bad, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost free. I mean, think about I assume they charge a bandwidth on top of the service. They usually do. Yeah, there's a bunch of other costs associated with this too, but the, uh, one of the largest costs was this remote action cost. 
you know, we always talk about sometimes leading, leading uh, announcements that lead into other events. And so if you think about step functions and what they're doing with some of these things, you know, if you're, if you're penalized for making these calls to the remote device, you definitely don't want to have a, an interactive session that requires, you know, a lot of back and forth chatter between the IoT device and the control panel, uh, where this might start enabling some new features and things like green grass and others that um, are more bidirectional and more getting telemetry and real-time data processing from the cloud or from the edge um, directly into the devices. And I think that's where you're seeing this is kind of a stepping stone to some bigger picture that we don't quite understand yet. Mm-hmm. It's my uh, AI-powered submarine, for sure. Oh, for sure. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, speaking of step functions, uh, AWS has announced the integration of workflow with step functions and AWS code build. Uh, this allows you now to start setting up more complicated build pipelines. So uh, typically one of the challenges with using code build, for those of you who have attempted it, uh, like myself, is that you typically have to run the entire code build pipeline every time. So if you, you know, are doing a hotfix and it's only five lines of code, you still have to go through you know, your, your checkmark scan, your uh, continuous integration testing, your unit tests, all these things. And you know, it might take a good couple hours if you have a very robust test suite uh, and you just need to get a, ta- a really quick patch out. So uh, with this capability, now you can actually set up different branches and say, this is a hotfix and I don't care about all those things. I can set up different user input parameters. If uh, certain tests fail, I can actually trigger other events to occur in my pipeline. And there's a lot of capabilities that this really enables for you uh, to be able to leverage you know, a much more powerful story around your continuous integration, continuous deployment pipelines uh, around this capability. So I actually really am excited about this. This is one of the, you know, one of the few announcements I've seen for uh, work step functions where I actually really get it. <laughs> I really understand why it's important because uh, I'm not a huge step functions person, but uh, I do appreciate what it can do in a lot of different use cases. But this one is uh, very close and near and dear to my heart as being a DevOps guy for a very long time. Uh, I, I'm very familiar with these use cases and patterns. Yeah, you were really excited in Slack when this came out. And so I read it and I was like, I don't, because I read the t- headline and I was, I don't really understand why, like code pipeline, it does things, nothing, until I started diving into the details and how powerful this really was and the type of, the type of flexibility you have and the actions that you can take um, during your code builds. It is really, truly something that is going to make these tools much easier to use. And EventBridge is cool too. Like if you like listening for events to trigger these things in basic different functions, I was thinking about the use cases for using like Jira to stream events into the EventBridge and trigger code build pipeline or, mm-hmm. you know, actions. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, well, and because it's step functions, again, you're talking about Lambda. So you can now spin off a ton of different stuff with Lambda Spackle. You know, you can do all kinds of things where you're basically shipping, uh, you know, I'm triggering now a Kubernetes build I'm, or, you know, deployment. I'm triggering uh, a telemetry thing where I'm now pulling in data then into machine learning and that's now changing the paradigms of how I'm doing a bunch of stuff in my pipeline. So there, I think there's just a lot of really cool use cases this enables. And I'm super excited to see what people develop over the next few months um, using this capability. Uh, and I think it really takes code pipeline from being like, yeah, they can kind of do what Jenkins does to this is actually a tool I could actually see using now. Peter and Jonathan don't care at all. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. You could already do these things, to be fair. You could you could have previously written a Lambda function which did all these things. It just wasn't so nicely packaged and nicely integrated. Well, yeah, the APIs just, were always there. They were always there, but you know, I think again you know, code build specifically was so limited in what those actions could be. And they only accepted certain action capabilities and certain outputs. And so I think this gives you a lot more flexibility on that side of it. So I, I agree with you. That's what a lot of people have done for a long time is you build this on Lambda, you use Jenkins and everything is hunky-dory. Um, I think now you can actually put a lot more of this logic into code build, which I like. Yep. 
Yeah, there are things you couldn't do before, like the the parallel builds per branch and and those things, which this will state you know having a state machine powering these decisions enables a lot more mm-hmm. logic. So it's it's still cool, and it's yeah, I like it. Quiet you. <laughs> I, I think I think it's going to take a long time for people to understand the real power of things like step functions, and 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 sort of showcasing examples like this where you you could show really how good it is and how useful it is for very specific use cases will will just serve to to train people and and then help them adopt the service for all kinds of things. You know, it's 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 such an abstract thing. Um, I, I think it's going to take a long time for people to to really kind of grok it and um, and use it for everything. Unless, of course, no code happens. <laughs> and then, no, you know, if you have no code involved here and you have some use cases that you might need code built for and that too. And so I think, again, a lot of announcements kind of lead to bigger things in the future. And again, this is another one of those ones that I feel has larger impacts in a bigger picture uh, perspective. So we'll see. You still have, you still have to build the, the application, though, even if it's a no-code application. Like it's, it's, there must be You're some right. input that says like what it's going to do. So it's, it's like, you know, hashtag no no-code. <laughs> yeah. All code. I'm all about uh, the all code. All code, yeah. Well, the uh, final Amazon story for the week is the general availability of Ultra Warm for Amazon Elasticsearch. Uh, Ultra Warm is, of course, their low-cost storage tier to provide fast interactive analytics up, up to three petabytes of log data at one-tenth of the cost of the current Amazon Elasticsearch service storage tier. Ultra Warm is, of course, complementary to Elasticsearch hot storage. You cannot use it without it. Uh, and ES, of course, is a popular service for log analytics for most companies because of its ability to ingest high volumes of log data and analyze it interactively uh, for fractions of the pennies that Splunk would cost you. Uh, Ultraworm solves the problem of the hot storage requirement, and this now makes it much simpler to simplify and streamline your data processing pipelines. The Ultraworm cluster has two sizes available today to you, a medium with a 2V CPU and 15 uh, gigs of memory uh, at 23 cents per hour or a large with 16V CPU and 120 gigs of memory at uh, $2.68 per hour. So if you're using Amazon's Elasticsearch capabilities and services, uh, this is definitely something to check out very quickly as it'll start saving you big money. I'm surprised I made such a big deal about this. I mean, frozen indexes have been a, a thing in Elasticsearch for quite a while, so meh. Well, it's the orchestration of of those frozen indexes is really the service, right? Like that's de- declaring an index as an ultra warm index or a frozen index. Like that's really the service around this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a sign of the things to come. There'll be more tiers in the future as far as, you know, that will add to just to in, in, introduce more ways to reduce costs. Yeah, I'm, I think they're ready to extend the Elasticsearch service to to adopt more of the Amazon sort of natives like S3, for example. I mean, why why even keep it on EC2 instance powered up all the time yeah. if you only need it once every three three weeks or something? Keep it in S3. Yeah, I mean that's the chaos, that's the chaos search play right now. Is you know basically yeah. put your data into yeah. S3. We keep the metadata in our in our indexes, and when you need the data, we just go pull it from S3 directly. So. I do. I do think um, we'll probably see some of that capability coming out in the future as well. But uh, we'll see when it comes. Apparently, the best named cloud product ever. This is the Amazon Hypothesis. Hypothesis, an open source Java GC latency benchmark with predictable allocation rates. The Amazon Credit team introduced the open source Hypothesis benchmark, a synthetic workload that simulates fundamental application characteristics that affect uh, garbage collection la- garbage collection latency. Uh, the benchmark creates and tests GC load scenarios defined by object allocation rates, heap occupancy, and JVM flags, and then reports the result to the J- resulting JVM pauses caused by it. 
Uh, and they're continuing to work on this, apparently uh, building out CPU power, fragmentation effects, and more dynamics and varied object demographics uh, to help continue to improve this. Uh, interesting enough, in the blog post, they did uh, call out Jiltine's heat fragger uh, and did personally thank him for all the work he'd done in that project. Uh, and they said a lot of their work was influenced by his uh, heat fragger as well as the J Hiccup agent uh, is what they use to actually measure the JVM posits. So I don't know if that's because he has an interesting licensing on his open source work that requires them to publicly mention him, or they really are just that impressed. But I was impressed that they put it in the article altogether. So. Yeah. Recall all my Minecraft-playing friends will be very, very happy because uh, Garbage Collection sucks for, for Java-based games. <laughs> I unfortunately don't think Microsoft's going to be a big uh, user of Hypothesis uh, to fix Minecraft, though, unfortunately. <laughs> There's a new query monitoring capability uh, in the Amazon Redshift console. Uh, Amazon uh, Redshift Console simplifies isolating and fixing expensive queries with the redesigned query monitoring page. Uh, you can use the redesign, redesign query monitoring page by navigating to a cluster details for a cluster and then selecting the query monitoring tab. Uh, customers can execute thousands of queries in their data warehouse, and sometimes it's difficult for them to isolate problematic queries. Uh, you can filter up to the top 100 queries by query runtime or duration for the selected time period. And the query monitoring page visually shows the queries in a Gantt chart and allows you to isolate slow or long-running queries. I, mean, I don't know about you guys, but I love looking at my queries and Gantt charts. <laughs> well, I tell you what, if you're paying a ton for a Redshift cluster and the thing was maxed out and you can't run the queries you want, you can't figure out why. And you're like, dude, I need this thing to, I got to find out what it's doing. It's like, sorry, you, you can't see it's a managed service. That'd probably be pretty frustrating. You should run a query to see how many times you said query in that last, uh, <laughs> yeah. last new story. <laughs> I'm working myself up for the lightning round. Yeah. Select count, little select count query. I think they probably get a lot of features around monitoring for Redshift just because typically you're sitting around waiting for the thing to finish. So you got to do something and you may as well file off a feature request. Well, and why it's either that or, you know, pay attention to that LinkedIn ad from Snowflake. (laughs) (laughs) I think they're building more query monitoring because. I mean, I, I still think they're going to announce a serverless redshift. And I think query monitoring is going to be important around serverless redshift so they know when to scale up and when not to scale up or, or scale down, as the case may be. Yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of stuff coming from redshift in the future. I mean, I don't have the inside track on any of this, but I, I do really know they're, they want to beat Snowflake, I think. And so I think you're going to see more in redshift very, very soon. And we've already seen a ton. Like, you know, reInvent was a, a, a lot of Redshift and SageMaker. They're, they're continuing to, to progress down that path. So it makes sense we'd see more. I can also imagine a bunch of customers complaining that they're not getting the performance they expected out of Redshift, blaming the cluster. And then uh, after digging in, it's like, man, you see this query you wrote? It's not us, it's you. <laughs> You get many to many to many join on how many million rows? Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> good times. Uh, but it is a columnar database, so I think it's technically many many to many columns. Many to many, yeah, yeah, many to many columns. <laughs> I don't know enough about columnar to actually comment if that's true or not. But someone will correct me, I'm sure, if I was just made that up. <laughs> it's fun. The uh, EC2 M6G instances announced at reInvent. Uh, or now generally available. These are the new AWS Graviton 2 uh, AMD chips. These are designed by AWS and Annapurna Labs, which Amazon owns, so I don't know why it wasn't just designed by AWS, but here we are. Utilizing the 64-bit ARM Neoverse N1 cores, uh, these processors support 256-bit always-on DRAM encryption. They also include dual SIMD units to double the floating point performance versus the first-generation Gravitons. 
and they support Int 8 and FP16 instructions to accelerate machine learning inference workloads. Uh, the M6G instances are available in eight sizes with one to 64 CPUs, as well as a bare metal instance. Uh, and they support configurations up to 256 gigs of memory, 25 gigabits of networking performance, and 19 gigabits of EBS bandwidth, all powered by the Nitro system. Uh, running a typical open source app stack generally deployed on x86-64 architectures, migrating to Graviton 2 uh, will give you up to a 40% improvement on cost-performance ratio compared to similar-sized M5 instances. Well, that's pretty huge. Uh, they have some customers here, including Honeycomb, uh, uses 30% fewer instances compared to the C-series. And InterSystems, uh, which makes a database solution, reported a 28% improvement and 20% cost reduction compared to the equivalent M5 instances. That's huge. Uh, even internal teams at Amazon are seeing these benefits, including the Elasticash team that found that M6G instances deliver up to 50% throughput improvement over M5 instances for Redis. So that's a uh, pretty big. They did mention about compiling, and you know, that's one of the big complaints about ARM is that you have to compile your apps. Uh, they did mention that you know, for most interpreted languages like Java, Node.js, Python, and Go, uh, your code should be able to run unmodified on M6G, uh, or only uh, compiled applications would have to be changed potentially. Uh, the computer and memory optimized, the, C- the C6G and the R6G are still coming soon, uh, but we do expect to see them very, very soon. The M5 Metal, for comparison here, is uh, $30,363 a month. The M6G Metal is $1,833 uh, a month. Uh, now, they're not quite exactly the same, so I'll give you a more apples-to-apples comparison here between the M5X Large, uh, which is $140.16, and the M6G X-Large is $114.57. Uh, so significant price savings for potentially a lot more capacity and performance. Mm, I wonder how much of that's um, the cost of the silicon itself because they're not paying Intel or AMD. It's, um, you know, it's basically getting it at their own cost because they're making them themselves or how, and how much is power consumption. But I think that the thing that is most interesting to me is um, encrypted RAM, basically, because now each tenant on a hypervisor, it gets a different key to encrypt the data in RAM, so it really mitigates some of the um, some of the concerns about basically sucking data out of somebody else's VM. Attacks from the side, yeah, like like, like the Rohammer uh, attacks and yeah. things like that, where you can you can basically copy contents of somebody else's VM into your own. So neat. I, I previewed the M6Gs, and um, I really wanted to run um, Elasticsearch on there, but they te- they they don't offer that as a supported option. Even though you could you could compile it yourself for, for ARM, it's not supported yet. But that would be awesome for running huge clusters. Yeah, and that price decrease. I mean, you just look at the. I mean, that's like a chunk decrease if you could move to those instances if you're doing heavy compute right now. Yeah, and these things scream for all for all that I've heard. You know, as far as people using them, whether the performance is astronomical, where you you get not only the cost savings if you go to apples to apples instance size, but most likely you can downsize your instance size because the performance gains are there. So it's you get even more savings. So it's kind of crazy. That, I mean, they definitely optimize these with with uh, moving bunches of data around for machine learning, and so I think we're going to see some awesome benchmarks comparing what Google have with uh, what AWS have later in the year. Yeah, I'm definitely curious to see what those look like. Uh, you know, they, it's interesting uh, on the Apple podcasts that I listen to, they talk about the, I think it's the A12X Bionic that's in the new iPad Pro. And they say that, you know, basically, if you look at the benchmarks on the ARM chip that's in the iPad Pro versus the brand new, you know, $25,000 iMac or, or sorry, Mac Pro, that the single core performance uh, between the ARM chip and the the Mac Pro, the ARM chip beats it significantly. Wow. The $1,200 iPad versus a you know fifteen thousand dollars starting spec, 
uh, Mac Pro, you know, beats the crap out of it. So these ARM chips are going to revolutionize a lot of things. Uh, yeah. yeah, but that's not that's not, a single core performance is not that's very application. Even, even on multi core performance, they're pretty close. So. Yeah, but when you talk about massive NUMA architectures, when you've got chunks of memory being shared by small clusters of, of cores, I mean, that things are, they're optimized for totally different workloads. So while I get it's impressive and what, what Apple are doing with ARM is also cool, I, I don't think it's a fair comparison. Fair enough. Apparently, Google's come out with their own ARM chips too soon. So we'll get to, I we'll hope get so, because that, that was also one of my predictions for last year. <laughs> yeah. They're obviously late. They're saying, well, they're saying they're going to come out for Android first. So maybe that's their, their foray. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, reinventing enterprise search with Amazon Kendra is now generally available. Uh, this is also a reinvent announcement in preview. Uh, Kendra is designed to quickly and easily find information that you might need, uh, whether it's looking for the latest version of the company travel policy or asking more technical questions like what's the tensile strength of epoxy adhesives, because you can store that in your internet, of course, and we never get the right answer right away or at all. Uh, Kendra solves this problem and enables organizations to index structured and unstructured data stored in different backends, such as file systems, applications, intranets, and relational databases. Um, you can also do searches based off natural languages, as well as semantic searches and rhetoric searches. Uh, it can be integrated into search pages, chat apps, chatbots, and more, and uh, has several new features as part of its GA, including a new scaling option for Enterprise Edition, a new developer edition for lower cost development needs, three new cloud connectors, including OneDrive, Salesforce, and ServiceNow. Uh, in addition to S3, RDS, and SharePoint, which came out at uh, preview. And then expertise on eight new domains, including automotive, health, HR, legal, media, entertainment, uh, news, telecom, travel, and leisure, in addition to chemical, energy, finance, insurance, and IT and pharmaceuticals, uh, as well as faster indexing and improved accuracy. Still has very limited uh, regional availability. East 1, West 2, and EU West 1 are the only regions. Uh, and the pricing has now been released as well. Uh, it's not cheap, let me tell you that right now. <laughs> it's about $5,200 a month uh, to start, and it goes up from there. So uh, definitely keep an eye out on that if you're going to be looking at this uh, before you get too excited. Uh, there is a quote here from the Allen Institute. Uh, One of the most impactful things AI like Amazon Kendra can do right now is help scientists, academics, and technologists quickly find the right information in a sea of scientific literature and move important research faster. The semantic scholar team at the Allen Institute for AI, along with our partners, is proud to provide Cord 19 and to support the AI resources the community is building to leverage this resource to tackle this crucial problem around COVID-19. So uh, very beneficial in the medical scientific community right now. I love this stuff. It just reminds me, uh, all these announcements around AI and uh, natural language processing just reminds me more and more of having watched Star Trek years ago and uh, people just naturally asking a computer to do things or for information and things just getting done. It's just, I think we're almost there in the future now. Until I can get beamed up by a... A particle accelerator and moved around the country, you know, instantaneously. I don't know over there. Oh, no, I want matter replicators. Matter replicators. That's yes, what I that'd want. That'd be awesome too. I want that too. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, the one thing I the interfaces on the uh, Star Trek is pretty rough. I uh, played with one of those simulators that simulates their data pads. That was it's not a good UI. I don't know who designed that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, every time I have a cloud service that has some ridiculously high starting price. It feels like a single tenant solution. Could be. I mean, the pricing on this, uh, since you mentioned it, uh, you can search up to 500,000 documents or up to 40,000 queries per day for $7 an hour, which is basically $5,200 a month. Uh, and per document scanned and per hour connector is $0.35. Cents. So yeah. That's I, what if I want to scan one document? 
you're paying seven dollars an hour plus exactly (laughs) hey everyone jonathan here i just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible these folks truly get it cloud consulting experts since 2008 they are premier tier partners with aws google cloud platform silver and microsoft azure partners from multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Like So as we mentioned uh, in the Google announcement around their uh, ability to index data, uh, Azure also announced something this week that's very similar to it. Uh, this is the ability to manage and find data with Blob Index for Azure Storage, uh, now in preview. Uh, Blob Index is a managed secondary index allowing you to store multidimensional object attributes to describe your data objects for Azure Blob Storage. Uh, Blob indexes offers consistent reliability, availability, and performance for all your workloads. And as data sets get larger, finding specific related objects in the sea of data can be difficult and frustrating, as we'll just talked about. Uh, previously, you could use List Blob's API to retrieve 5,000 records at a time, parse through the list, and repeat until you found the desired blob. And many users also resort to managing a separate lookup table to find specific objects. Uh, these can get out of sync with the physical data, increasing cost, complexity, and frustrations. Uh, blob indexes alleviate this pain of data management and querying with support for all blob types, including blob blobs, append blobs, and page blobs. And to populate the blob index, you define key value tag attributes in your data, either on new data during upload or an existing data already in your storage account. Uh, you can then reference these blog or blob services as just as lifecycle management policies uh, as well, so which is pretty great. How many people actually generate tons and tons of data and they don't know what it is or where it goes? I mean, it, it seems kind of weird to me that there is so much demand for a service where you need to find something that you didn't know where you put it to begin with. Large, I, large Fortune 50 enterprises with multiple dis- distinct business units that don't coordinate each other. <laughs> <laughs> AKA everywhere I've ever worked. <laughs> <laughs> or if you need to index blah, blah, blah's blah, blog. Nice. Nice. The, uh, you know, typically... If you think about a really dispersed company, you know, typically corporate IT in the center doesn't always know what the business units are doing. And if the corporate IT wants to be able to pull data across multiple business units, they may not know how the data looks. And so these things become pretty handy pretty quickly versus, you know, denormalizing all the data into data warehouse and then doing all these big ETL rollups. Uh, this might be a much faster way to discover data sets that you have that already exist. The next evolution of the Azure VMware solution, uh, this is announcing the preview of the next generation solution uh, for VMware designed and built and supported by Microsoft and endorsed by VMware. The new Azure VMware solution empowers customers to seamlessly extend or completely migrate their existing on-premise VMware apps to Azure without the cost, effort, or risk of re-architecting applications or retooling operations. Additional benefits include the ability to use the Azure hybrid licensing benefits, which will save you a ton of money on your Windows and SQL Server costs. Um, Now, again, uh, this is kind of interesting because we talked about this last year in episode 21 that they had this capability. uh, But that was through a partner uh, called Cloud Simple. And as we talked about in episode 48 in November, they were purchased by Google, who also announced a partnership with them uh, in episode 33. So this is basically their way of now solving the problem that Google bought the partner that they were using to provide VMware in 
Azure. So glad to see this improvement. Uh, it's interesting that VMware is actually an official partner on this one, where uh, in the past they had only officially partnered with AWS. So glad to see that VMware is trying to change their tune and partner with more clouds. So what do they mean exactly by VMware applications? So this means you can take your VM and you can move it as is and still run it on top of VMware on top of Azure. Yeah. It's, tur- it's turtles all the way down. Yeah. Could I run uh, Kubernetes cluster on top of that? You could. You could run uh, You could run Tanzu if you wanted to, which is yeah. VMware's <laughs> Kubernetes capability on top of VMware, on top of Azure. And, you know, it's, again, lots of layers of abstraction on top of blobs, which you then index with the blob index. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we kind of expected this to happen. I think we talked about it in episode 48 when they got bought that this would be an interesting issue for Azure to deal with. And this is their solution to that problem. So glad to see them solve it. Uh, and definitely we'll see where that continues to move on in the future. Uh, Azure is going to open up their first data center in New Zealand uh, as they see cloud usage grow in uh, the Kiwi country. Azure has announced plans to open a new data center in New Zealand once it receives approval from the Overseas Investment Office. Uh, the significant investment in New Zealand's digital infrastructure is a testament to the remarkable spirit of New Zealand's innovation and reflects how we're pushing the boundaries of what is possible as a nation. Vanessa Sorensen, general manager at Microsoft's New Zealand, said in a statement, uh, the company has intended to do more than just open a data center. I will also be making this a part of a broader investment across the country, including skills training and reducing the environmental footprint of data centers in New Zealand. Uh, so Microsoft's going to invest some money. I don't know when that data center is going to open, but sometime some next couple of years, I guess. That last bullet point is just code for New Zealand gave us a whole bunch of tax breaks to do a thing. And <laughs> those tax breaks are contingent upon number of jobs created or some other contingency. <laughs> when I was living out there, there was a little uh, tension around people leaving New Zealand and going to Australia for the economy. And yeah. so the New Zealanders would tell a little joke uh, when someone from New Zealand leaves and goes to Australia, they raise the average IQ of both countries. <laughs> nice. uh, that's a serious problem for the for New Zealand though. They call it the brain drain. Yeah. I mean before COVID they had some programs to uh, encourage tech workers and other jobs to actually relocate there from the states and other places. They've had programs for years now. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a pretty small country. Population wise, it's only like four million, four or five million people. I, I just want to go and drive around. It looks beautiful in all the photos. It is like ninety percent of the country's national park or something. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, uh, the feature is finally here, Peter. You can now deploy Azure Data Lake storage because it's now available to you as a premium tier. Yes! Uh, so <laughs> the new premium tier for Azure Data Lake is a new performance tier, which complements the existing hot, cool, and archive tiers for ADLS Gen 2. Uh, premier tier offers significantly lower storage latencies compared to the other tiers and cost savings for those that are transactionally heavy. Scenarios that are helped by the new premium tier include the scenarios that require real-time access and random read-write access to large volumes of data, workloads that have small-sized read-and-write transactions, read-heavy workloads, and workloads that are, have a high number of transactions or a high transactions per gigabyte ratio. Uh, so there you go, Peter. You know I like my premium services. Yeah, I mean, I asked Jonathan for a report earlier, but uh, he didn't select the premium version of the warehouse, so I'm still waiting mm-hmm. for him to get back. That works. <laughs> Everyone loves a good premier, premium storage tier. But if ultra premium. It's coming next, I'm sure. Ultra premium for even <laughs> more random read-write activities. <laughs> Not what I want my disk to do. Yeah. Uh, the Azure Blob storage is enhancing its data protection and recovery capabilities. And when you protect the blob, uh, things get geozone redundant storage. And so that means that you can now provide protections against regional disasters and account failovers, 
allowing you to determine when to initiate a failover instead. Uh, Zala now generally available, and, as well as releasing two new features for you uh, in preview versioning and point-in-time recovery. Again, when I see these type of features, I sometimes wonder, where were these when you launched? And if you're competing with S3, how did you not have them? Uh, but of course, the GZRS, or the GeoZone Redundant Storage, as they call it, uh, writes three copies of the data synchronously across multiple Azure availability zones, similar to Zone Redundant Storage, which they call ZRS, because that's not confusing, and provides you continued read-write access even if a data center or AZ is unavailable. Additionally, the GZRS uh, is an async replicates your data to the secondary GeoPair region to protect your, your, yourself against regional unavailability. Uh, the versioning is what you think it is. It's versioning a document, and so you can have multiple versions available to you via version ID and a point-in-time restore, uh, which can allow you to restore a subset of containers or blobs within a storage account to previous state. I like the point-in-time recovery. That's cool. That's something that Amazon do not have. Yeah. Imagine rolling back all the changes in the bucket to a to a fixed state. That'd be that'd be great for deployments that, that go wrong, or great for data that gets deleted accidentally, or or corrupted somehow. That's or that's maliciously, yeah. Or maliciously, I'm thinking yeah. like I'm thinking like uh, you know ransomware attacks that maybe you know right now they're on boxes, but maybe they end up in your S3 accounts, yeah, or or your your Azure accounts, and uh, um, or malicious internal actors, you know. It, just think, just think if somebody steals all your data, from, if somebody steals all your data from S3 and then deletes it, you can restore it so it can be stolen all over again. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> over and over, like Groundhog's Day. Yeah, no, that's really cool. That's, that's a good feature. We should uh, we should request that. Azure Virtual Machine Scale Sets now provide simpler management uh, during scale-in events. Uh, Azure Scale, of course, is a collective way to deploy and easily manage a number of VM instances in a group. Uh, you can configure auto-scaling rules for your scale sets that enable you to dynamically increase or decrease the number of instances based on what the workload requires. Uh, so these new features allow you to basically protect an instance. So with instance protection, uh, you can now apply the protect from scale-in events uh, to allow these instances to be protected from scale-in events. So if you have two servers that you somehow reason are pets, uh, but they're in a scale set group and you want to add more nodes to it, you can make sure those two nodes never get dropped uh, from the auto-scaling activity, uh, which is a terrible pattern. Don't do that. But if you want it, you have an option. The next one is the custom scale-in policies. Uh, when one or more instances need to be removed from a scale set, the instances are collected in a way that remains balanced across AZs and default domains. But with the scale-in policy, you can now give it things like delete the oldest VMs first uh, when you're scaling out versus the newest VMs, uh, which might be something handy that I wish uh, I could get in auto-scale groups. Uh, they do still preference the balancing across AZs uh, to make sure you maintain redundancy. And then the last one is a terminate notification. Uh, when an instance is about to be deleted from a scale set, you may want to perform a certain custom action on the instance, like you register from the load balancer, copy the logs off to uh, S3 or blob storage, whatever. And with the terminate notification feature, you can configure your instance to receive NVM notifications about upcoming instance deletion and pause the delete operation for 5 to 15 minutes uh, to perform those custom actions. Uh, these notifications are sent through the Azure metadata service and can be received using a REST endpoint accessible from within the VM. Uh, and when your action completes, you can also post back to the metadata service, letting it know the server is ready for termination. Um, I think that's a really cool feature. Amazon have all these things, and they have for years. You can get SNS notifications. They have life cycling for auto-scaling uh, instances, so you can move them off to the side and copy logs off and do things before they get terminated. They've got custom scaling policies where you can do oldest first, newest first, stay balanced. Uh, this is absolutely nothing new, nothing revolutionary, and it must be really ballsy of a marketing person to put a post together like this when it's just catch-up stuff. Can you post the metadata? 
I don't know. You can post the metadata. Sort of yeah, that right last now. one is the differentiator. Uh, you're right. Everything else, Amazon definitely. Is a, is a, yeah, Amazon. Well, with spot instances in, the, in an AWS, uh, they communicate termination notices through the metadata service. Yeah, but not an autoscale group that doesn't use spot that I'm aware of. But they have lifecycle life cycle hooks that you can do exactly the same thing. That's true. Yeah, yeah. It's a lifecycle hook. So nothing new, nothing to see here. Yeah, but it's new if you're an Azure user. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it, it goes to show just how many features I take for granted, not having a lot of workloads, uh, mm. you know, in other clouds, you know, and so I've only dabbled with Azure, I've played around with Google. And so a lot of these things, when they, they're announced, uh, I'm like, they didn't have that, you know, like it's such, so spoiled. In my, in I mean, my that even happens to be though on Amazon stuff sometimes. So they'll announce yeah. me. I was like, I thought I already did that. <laughs> yeah, it happens to all of us. Uh, well, good to see it for uh, scale sets, which is a terrible. By the way, this whole naming on this is awful. A scale set and a scale in event, but a scale in event can be a scale out event when you're scaling more servers up, or you're scaling more servers. I, I I'd like to think that uh, AWS got all the good names, and as you are just have to think of really bad ones but we know that's not the case either so no. <laughs> i mean if, if aws can come up with hypothesis yeah as a name uh, azure can come up with something better than you know scale in events that means you're adding or removing servers so I just in, imagine, to me it tells me ugh. i just imagine teaching the class on this and trying to explain what all these terms mean to people who are unfamiliar with any of these things and it just sounds like it would sound like so much gibberish and the same word mm-hmm. over and over and over with different meanings <laughs> I think Today, I just sort of copied Amazon's terms until they sued me because it's so much easier since it's they, they created the market. I mean, I can see the beginning. Welcome to the advanced Azure architecture class where we're going to talk about blobs, blob objects, blob storage, premium ultra blobs, and scale in sets. And like everyone's going to be like, huh? I'm in the wrong room. Yeah. <laughs> this is ceramics. <laughs> Oh, this is basket weaving 101. <laughs> Media studies. Uh, Microsoft and Redis Labs uh, are collaborating to give you developers new Azure cache for Redis capabilities. Uh, Azure has always had a Redis offering uh, via the open source capabilities of Redis, uh, but they did not have enterprise, and none of the cloud providers provide enterprise features today. Uh, the partnership represents the first native integration between Redis Labs technology and a major cloud platform, underscoring Azure's commitment to customer choice and flexibility uh, this allows you to now start using some of the uh, Redis Labs plugins, including uh, Redis Search, Redis Bloom, Redis Time Series, and many, many more, as well as uh, you have ability to get to support on the Redis side, as well as Azure uh, to jointly offer this to you as a customer. So if you're into Redis in a big way and you want all these advanced capabilities and you're going to have to run it on an instance on Azure, you now have this available to you through this partnership. What's it mean, the first native integration between Redis Labs and the major cloud platform? Elasticash is supposed to be Redis forever. No, but that's open source Redis. This is an enterprise offering. And Azure even had open source Redis before this with Azure Cache for Redis. This is about bringing the enterprise features to Azure customers using Azure Cache for Redis. You can now enable these enterprise capabilities and pay more money. It's basically Azure Redis Cache Premium or Ultra Premium. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to wait for the... What does Redis Enterprise do? That uh... it gives you advantages of new, all these plugins. So the Redis Search, the Redis Bloom, and the Redis Time Series plugin, for example, from Redis Labs, uh, are capabilities to enhance and make your Redis better. But it's a key value store. Why, why do you need those things? Some developer out there is super excited about this, Jonathan, and I don't <laughs> yeah. know who it is, but they're I, they're really I, excited. 
You can email Jonathan at thecloudpod.net with all of your complaints. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. (laughs) Redis Bloom extends Redis Core to support additional probabilistic data structures. It allows for solving computer science problems at a constant memory space with extremely fast processing and low error rate. It supports scalable Bloom and Cuckoo filters to determine with a degree of certainty whether an item is present or absent from a collection. Uh, That sounds cuckoo to me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i have no idea what we should use that. we should use we should let redis bloom um do uh summit predictions next year oh there you go, yeah apparently there's also redis json which makes redis support json documents redis graph for graph database needs uh redis gears and redis ai so those are all additional modules that might be able to get in the future Actually, actually, there was one cool thing that I learned about Redis a long time ago, which is the way you could do backups of uh, the key value store, or the way it did backups of the key value store when you issued the uh, the save command. And that's that it, it just uh, it literally forks its process and relies on the operating system to copy the entire memory set into another process. And then one of them dumps it to disk, and the other one just carries on running as a server. It's, it's really kind of a novel way of uh, doing it, but it doesn't mean you need twice as much memory in the server if you want to do backups to disk or persist to disk. It's a really neat way of using something that the operating system provides natively to, to do yeah. something like that, when otherwise, you know, it would be difficult. So there we go. Nerd 101. Nice. Uh, well, I mean, considering how much Jonathan loved the uh, scale set changes, <laughs> he's going to really love this feature. Shut the front door. <laughs> and now, announcing the Azure Front Door Rules Engine in preview. Uh, this is a, you know, Azure Front Door, of course, is CloudFront uh, on the Azure world. Uh, you can take advantage of new rules to further customize the Azure front door behavior to meet the needs of their customers. The rules engine allows you to specify how HTTP requests are handled at the edge. Uh, this allows you to do things like enforce HTTPS, ensure all your end users interact with the content over a secure connection, implement all sorts of security headers, including cross-site uh, crypting, content security policy, cores, policies, etc. Route requests to mobile or desktop version of your application based on the patterns in the context of the request header. Use redirect capabilities to return 301, 302, 307, 308 redirects to the client, direct new host names, paths, or protocols, dynamically modify the caching configuration of your route based on the incoming request, and rewrite the request URL path and forward the request to the appropriate backend in the configured backend pool. And I know you're going to tell me cache CloudFront already had all those features. Right? Lambda at edge. Hey. <laughs> Light. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but it's neat, though. It's good that they're continuing to work on things when they know they've been beaten and won. Never win over AWS and GCP. So, no, I mean, there's a ton of Microsoft <laughs> companies out there that are super excited about moving to Azure. Yeah, I'm sure they're very happy that they have this capability. They, they probably think it's revolutionary, Jonathan, because they don't know anything better. Maybe. <laughs> I, I guess we need to start talking about things without having to refer to AWS as the, uh, you know, to get people to understand what, what the technology is. But it's, it's hard not to when they're so far behind. But all these announcements are required for them to catch up. Yeah. yeah, it's they our job have to make them. Yeah, because all the customers, you know, the you know Amazon designs their feature set based on customer feedback. Azure customers are going to make the same thing. These are not unique features that people need, and so they got it. You know, you have to put these into your products, and so yes, someone else already did it, but if you don't establish that baseline where of you know comparable service, you can't really innovate from there. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't have to compare it to CloudFront. I can compare it to Cloudflare or uh, Akamai or something else. Yeah, Akamai. There you go. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, in a story uh, that we just announced in preview like three weeks ago, uh, 
Azure has made spot instances generally available. So you're welcome if you didn't want to use them before because they were in beta or preview. Uh, they're now available to you uh, as generally available. Uh, and as Ryan and I pointed out last time we talked about this, uh, they don't know what spot instances are really good for because their use cases still do not support fleets. So be careful <laughs> with these. They're a little early. The only thing you should use them for batch jobs and stateless applications and things that can only run in short periods of time. And based on the track record they've had in pandemic, I'm going to say the spot market is going to be pretty volatile. Mm-hmm. So I would uh, I would watch this one carefully. Don't do anything real with it yet. Well, I, I got to say, I'm just glad it's out of beta because I was when it was in beta, I was afraid I might lose an instance. <laughs> you should be afraid you're going to lose an instance now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Especially if you're not a paying customer. <laughs> uh, Google Cloud Data Catalog is a new fully managed and scalable metadata management service. Uh, you can use it to quickly discover, understand, and manage all the data from one simple interface. Uh, and they go on to say that most organizations are dealing with a large and growing number of data assets and they want, to, want to open up access to that data so business users can find the right data assets through self-service capabilities. Uh, Google apparently suffered similar challenges. And so they built this for Google and now have made this available to all GCP customers. The technical metadata for BigQuery assets like data sets, tables, and views is automatically synced into data catalog. And you can start using data catalog without tedious setup. Uh, it also syncs with data in PubSub and user-created file sets from cloud storage capabilities, as well as integrations into non-GCP data assets, leveraging the data catalog connectors uh, to pull this data together and then query it out of BigQuery. Uh, it does also support Google DLP to encrypt PII data that it discovers as it goes and does support all of the IAM capabilities of Google Cloud uh, to limit access to data to only people who need to see it. This is a fantastic service. Uh, like I, I missed the preview announcement of this, so I'm catching it now. So I'm, I just learned about this as I was reading through this release. It's just such a common problem that every business has, which is how to discover, you know, assets and how to know whose they are. And and you know, so Amazon uses tags, but you know, the tags are you know, their coverage is not always there, and people have to properly set the tags. And so I believe the service for at least these three Google services, you know, it's automatically generating this data into the catalog, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think just, big, come, go ahead, Peter. I just think the, the big part of this is, you know, what are the data connectors, the data catalog connectors, you know, what is that uh, coverage going to look like? Because for this to be a super effective service, it's got to cover a lot of your data yeah. in your enterprise. I sort of feel like this is what Amazon meant to release with Kendra, <laughs> but failed <laughs> failed completely. Um, you know, I, I do see this as really cool, and and the use cases, and you know, I wouldn't be shocked to see a SageMaker service come out that's sort of similar to this to allow you to do kind of similar things inside the SageMaker tooling. Um, but yeah, overall, I think there's a lot of really powerful use cases, and we actually. Uh, it's a, Amazon Asia actually has a very similar feature that they announced this week as well that we'll talk about a little bit in the future. Uh, but uh, you know, it's definitely a problem that a lot of enterprises suffer from, and I'm glad to see a solution out there in the market that isn't super expensive. I mean, it's, it's cool that it's all data though. It's not just we're indexing your Excel files or your Word docs or something else. I mean, it's it's all that stuff and more. It's you know every message that gets sent in a in a, in a notification service. It's everything in a queue. It's all that you've got in your tables. It really is uh, a view into everything that you have as a business or as, or as an organization. And um, th- this is going to be awesome for driving things like AI. I mean, AI thrives on data. 
and, and providing all the data, all the metadata about everything you have to an, an AI system with something like this will be fantastic. You know, we may not be going to Vegas this year because the reInvent might be canceled, but uh, Google has arrived and uh, they have announced their 23, 23rd region in Las Vegas is now online and available to all of their customers. Uh, this new Western region will allow you to spread workloads across the Western US, including our existing cloud regions in Los Angeles, Salt Lake City, and Oregon. Uh, and there's immediately access to three availability zones with each zone having a separate power software, power cooling network and security infrastructure and includes a large pool of compute and storage resources available to you today in beautiful Las Vegas. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's always been a hotspot for data centers. I remember 20 well, years know, ago, that was not, the DR, that was a desired DR location for all the people who had their data centers in the San Francisco Bay area. It's, it's funny to me because it, I know why they all want to be there, which is the Hoover Dam. The Hoover Dam is cheap power. Cheap power is why Vegas is there. Uh, but Hoover Dam also is a big natural, you know, non-natural land formation that has a large body of water behind it that if it ever failed, uh, would take out all those data centers. So for me, it's a little Be bit... above the dam. Be above the dam. <laughs> Be above the dam. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a, you know, definitely these things end up in Las Vegas because of the, the proximity to cheap power. It's the same reason why you see them, a lot of data centers in eastern Washington because of all the hydroelectric dams there. Uh, it's just a natural extension of any type of cheap power will be data centers uh, yeah. because they're very power hungry. Oregon as well. Like there's a lot of hydroelectric power off of the Columbia River. And that's why you see them there. Yep. And it's Same. not 120 degrees there. Yeah. True. Very true. It's, it's also really safe as far as natural disasters go. I mean, it's not, it's not uh, earthquake prone. It's not going to get hurricanes. It's not, it really isn't liable to flood too much. Um, it's, it's, sort of, it's a very safe place to be for a DR site. I thought Colorado was the place that had none of the natural disasters. Uh, I mean, Arizona, New Mexico are pretty popular for that too. So any, anywhere in that kind of that South Midwest region is kind of in that boat. Yeah. Cause if a comet's going to fall anywhere in the continental United States, it's totally going to hit Vegas. Like that's, that's where it should land. Gonna <laughs> um, land in the, in the Pacific ocean. Yeah. <laughs> Stay away from the coast. <laughs> Blog post uh, that highlights our future, or, you know, our former and hopefully future sponsor, Blue Medora, uh, talking about the use of BindPlane to aggregate all of your logs into the Google Cloud observability stack, which used to be known as Stackdriver. Uh, you can check out our interview with Mike Kelly from TCP Talks uh, to learn about more about BindPlane and all of that, uh, as well as read this blog post to see how Google uh, thinks about integrating these services too. So we want to give a shout out to them as that was a pretty great article and a little highlight for you on TCP Talks. When did they get rid of Stackdriver name? I love that name. Uh, that was like three or four weeks, like um, two months ago, maybe. They they renamed it to Observability Platform from Stackdriver. Eh, how lame. Mm-hmm. We didn't cover it on the show. It wasn't worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So what's it? It's G-Cop now or Observability? Like it's so, so vanilla. It's bland. Yeah, I like Stackdriver. I, I like Stackdriver too. I think that's a it was a missed opportunity. But I think they I think they didn't want it to be known as the acquisition they did that they integrated. So rebranded. Yeah, I don't like oh. it. Just uh, roll, roll get, off the tongue there, right? Rolls Google off the Cloud observability <laughs> platform versus Stackdriver. Like yeah. now, I don't know what Stackdriver has to do with monitoring or logging. So I mean, I get I get the confusion, <laughs> but I still like Stackdriver better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
get to know your Google Cloud with their new Google Cloud architecture framework available to everyone. The uh, framework provides architectural best practices and implementation guidance on products and services to aid your application design choices because based on your unique business needs. And we talk about this all the time in the cloud pod that you really do need to understand the core fundamentals of how these clouds are designed uh, to properly architect your own application to leverage them in highly available and fault-tolerant methods. Uh, this framework from Google allows you to uh, review four key principles, including operational excellence, security, privacy, and compliance, reliability, performance, cost optimizations, and uh, they also recommend reviewing the system design considerations first. No mention of the uh, the builders library at uh, the summit was there. Yeah, there was actually. It was there on was. The, yeah, it was on one of the slides. They, they talked about the, um, the the educational resources they had available. Do they announce I, that there's new articles? No, no. No, I got all excited for a second because they, they talked about the builder's library in the same context as the approved architectures library they have. But uh, yeah, so they announced a lot of new features for that side and then very quickly just stopped mentioning all of the builder's library stuff, which was sort of disappointing. Mm. So I, I really felt he was leading into it. Just didn't happen. Maybe we'll see an announcement in the next few days or, or weeks because, I mean, that, that, that keynote was also recorded well ahead of time. And um, maybe they they could didn't include things like feature releases because they weren't sure they were going to ship on time, and so perhaps we'll see something coming out soon. I hope I hope so. Uh, and our last Google announcement is uh, Datastax is bringing their Apache Cassandra as a service to Google Cloud, uh, so you can now license the Astra service, uh, which is their Datastax Cassandra as a service on Google Cloud, simplify your unified billing, and integrate directly into the Google Console. Uh, Astra deploys and manages your enterprise Cassandra database directly on top of Google Cloud's infrastructure available to you today if you're into Cassandra and you don't want to manage it, which Ryan recommends heavily. Yes, I do. Very much so. You recommend not managing it or managing Not it? managing Cassandra. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a little bit like uh, Atlas, isn't it, which is MongoDB's uh, basically similar offering. Cloud, yeah. 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 How, how do you feel though, about people uh, or about letting a vendor uh, remote into your account and manage infrastructure sort of within your own security? Well, I mean, world? Ever, ever since they announced this concept of having these open source technologies that plug into your, your Google account and you know, have access to your stuff, I've wanted them to explain the security better and they've yet to do so. Uh, so I do have a lot of questions about that and I would love to see a blog post from their security team explaining how they how they keep Datastax's uh, managed service away from your data that you don't want them to have access to. Um, especially if I mess up like firewall rules or other things that could, I could easily make a mistake on from a configuration perspective. Um, not that I expect that's happening, but I, I do want to know so I can be, you know, is this in its own isolated VPC and they're just using like an ENI type attachment that they do in Amazon to connect to my thing and I just talk to it to that endpoint or is it actually in my VPC? Like there's a bunch of questions about it that I don't really understand. Or I've really gotten clear answers about. So someday someone will tell me, or I'll Maybe. just do it myself and figure it out. We should we should try and get a Google person on to answer those questions for us. That'd make a good uh, good show. I did get a uh, correction from a Google person one time, and he he told me a couple of things, and he said he'd come on the show. I should ping him. Cool. Well, an Astro employee will never ask for your password. <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> Or require you to send a credit card number via email. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that takes us to the lightning round, Peter. Amazon CloudWatch Logs Insights now allows you to save queries. Query, no. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
I mean, the only insight I know from my logs is that people log too much stuff. Yeah. So this is for me, this is you already know your app breaks that one way. Why do you need to save your query that just shows that your app broke the same way? Keep reminding me, masochist. <laughs> just go fix your code. Fix the code. <laughs> I'm going to create an alert when I log this one event that I know is a terrible action that occurred. Great. Thanks. You could have just fixed the code in the time it took you to write that. <laughs> By query. Amazon Chime adds new policies to govern meeting access. I only need one policy. Denied. Yeah. yeah. Oh, can ooh, ooh. can ooh. I get a policy that makes it impossible for me to join a Chime meeting? Maybe. Nobody? Nobody's going to sing? Chime after chime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we could have won it. Damn it. <laughs> Tim did tweet us for, uh, when we posted that we liked his video. He, uh, he, uh, he liked our tweet about it. Parameter support is now available with service actions in AWS Service Catalog, our favorite feature. <laughs> well, depending on who it is, because Ryan hates it, Peter loves it, <laughs> and I'm neutral. And I don't actually know where Jonathan stands on the factor, but all I know is that now we're putting secrets into Service Catalog. How is that going to be? Well, you can only have one way to deploy an EC2 host. You may as well only have one secret for everything as well. There you go. For the record, it does not meet what my expectations are of a service catalog. <laughs> it does not meet mine either. <laughs> Automating BigQuery exports to an email. Or, as I call it, hey, the feature lets me to email the report to our CEO. <laughs> yeah. Well, that'd be a pretty small query to fit in an email, though. Small BigQuery. <laughs> Big small query. Big small. <laughs> just a just a summary of... I made a million dollars for the company this week. Look at how good I did. Mm-hmm. Jonathan said one of those earlier, how much money he saved me. Yeah. See, well, you could use it, Jonathan, right there. He did not include me on the CC. Disappointed. Oh, you went on there. No. Yeah. Yeah. I was quite pleased with that. But you should be. It's awesome. <laughs> now available enhanced monitoring capabilities for AWS Direct Connect. Allowing us to finally kill all the terrible monitoring we've done to try to monitor bandwidth through the Direct Connect. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to infer it from the ENI metrics. Like, yeah, it's not really accurate. Uh, it's the best I can do. <laughs> Especially when you pay for it, pay for the traffic, right? You'd think they'd have yeah, really, really good be, If they can yeah. bill it, then then they should have monitoring for it. Trust us. Would, just trust us. <laughs> the pricing Join is correct. Trust us. Yeah. AWS Systems Manager adds support for patching Debian and Oracle Linux instances. Got nothing. More importantly, who uses Oracle Linux? Oracle Linux. That is just, that is awesome. Are you coming down with the virus? Um, no, it's been <laughs> patched by AD of Assistance Manager. <laughs> yeah. The virus of Oracle was there at the beginning, though, because it's literally their <laughs> Linux. It was there to start. <laughs> you opened yourself to an audit day one because you installed Oracle Linux. The virus is there. <laughs> Isn't it cool that when Amazon got such good features that you can literally manage instances in somebody else's cloud with their systems manager with remotely managed instances? I mean, patching Oracle Linux instances in the Oracle cloud with Amazon's solution would just be awesome. You totally could do that because SSM works on-premise, so you could totally make yep. it There you go. Yep. That'd be neat. <laughs> can they patch my Mac? That'd be kind no. of good. Uh, no, no, oh. no Macs. Maybe next. They still don't allow virtualization for Mac OS, do they? No. Unless you're on a Mac. No. Control your email flows in Amazon Workmail using AWS Lambda. 
Uh, because that's what you want to do is fire up a Lambda for every bit of spam that comes into your company forever. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I ever set an email rule when I could just have it fire a Lambda to also just move it to this trash inbox? I mean, I think I think I might finally be beaten now on the number, you know, largest West Coast Lambda consumer. I may now be replaced by someone's spam. <laughs> Are they going to have like CloudWatch monitoring for this so you can tell if you had like a heavy flow month? <laughs> okay. Maybe we could set one up to res- just respond to wife. Yes, dear. Yes. yes dear. <laughs> email yes, address. Dear. That's a good one. Amazon Connect now supports automatic offline agent status. I thought this already existed. I'm sorry, you're lumber 1,345 in the queue to talk to an agent. Please hold. Your estimated wait time is four hours. Four, 25 minutes later, the call center is closed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That sucks. I thought that was already built in. <laughs> so are they saying with this that they actually used to root calls to agents who weren't even sitting at their desks? Kind of sounds like it. Well, I think what's saying is that basically if an agent doesn't automatically you know, set themselves offline that they'll detect through machine learning that they're not there and turn it off so they don't take a call. Mm. It's not my fault that I didn't take calls today, boss. The automatic offline agent thing did it. AWS console mobile application adds support for new services on Android. Who really uses the mobile app to manage their Amazon infrastructure? I tried twice and I said never again. It doesn't do anything. I can't even fit the, the, the console on my 15-inch screen most of the time, let alone an Android phone. Feedback for the UI team, it still sucks. Yeah, just one button, just new instance, new instance, <laughs> new instance. <laughs> how, do you, how would you even fill out the new instance form? Like, considering how many fields are on that and how many pages there are, like that would take forever default. on my mobile phone. Yeah. Just default. I, need a, I would need a launch. A launch uh, just one button, new instance. <laughs> you just get the same thing. <laughs> Amazon Code Guru Reviewer announces pull request dashboard. So as, as long as it tells me that this pull request is going to cost me $300 because Jonathan copy pasted 3000 lines, of, you know, 30,000 lines of code, that's all that matters to me. Yeah. Oh, I've had I've had nightmare stories of people who accidentally committed uh, like whole copies of NPM repos and things along oh. with their code. And it's, it's cost them tens of thousands of dollars to scan somebody else's code. But to be fair, it probably needed to be scanned. So <laughs> I, I, you know, I thank those people who did it. Yeah, really. <laughs> Can you post the results, please? Yeah, I'm sorry to hear. You, uh, sorry for your loss. Can you I'm post the lost. results, please? <laughs> Can you help the community out with this? It is open source code. You should commit back. Yeah. <laughs> AWS Trusted Advisor adds five new cost optimization checks. I only need one. The one that says CFO is going to be mad. Or CFO is going to be happy. That's the only one I need. Smiley That's face. I need. Sad face. I already ignore all the other trusted advisor checks, so I'm really glad they gave me five more that I can also ignore. It's so it's so unrealistic. Like seriously, this is underutilized. Yeah, it's underutilized, but but I need to be running all the time to do its thing when the time comes. It's like you can't get smaller than a T2 T2 Nano or something anyway. So I know it's underutilized. Thank you for your help. Mm-hmm. And the winner is uh, I'm sorry, Jonathan. You uh, you killed me with that first one with the queries, yes. saving the queries. <laughs> yeah, that was too good. <laughs> I had a suspicion that it was a, a loss from the beginning because that yeah. was pretty. Good. I almost wanted him to filter out my laugh. You really caught me off guard. <laughs> <laughs> it was
I think Jonathan's strategy now is either he's going to read the first one and he's going to really put a zinger there, but you'll remember through the whole thing, or he'll wait till the very end doing the last one. Yeah. And then he just kind of ignores everything in the middle. That's, I think it's. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. On to you, it's, it's working so far. It, it makes sense. <laughs> hey, he can't argue with the score. Sorry, Ryan. Yeah, I'll get there. I'll get there. Good. That's what I want to hear. You're like the Niners, worst to first. Worst to first. Well, the Niners aren't going to go worst to first this year, I don't think. Because <laughs> I don't know if there's going to be a season. Yeah. There might not be. Well, then they're going to go undefeated. That's pretty good. Yeah, well, day uh, day 6,325 of quarantine is past us now. <laughs> we'll wrap, yeah, really? up the, uh, wrap up the podcast for the night. So uh, thank you guys very much for joining us once again uh, after a very lackluster summit. Uh, we'll hopefully have something more interesting to uh, do a uh, draft on in the future. <laughs> All right, guys, have a good night. Have a great week ahead, and we'll be back next week here at the CloudPod. See ya. They can't hear you wave. Oh, whoops. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Uh, by the way, the number one way to make Jonathan not edit your mess up is to point out that he'll edit your mess up. Yeah, I, I was a fan before I was on the host, so I, I realized my mistake the minute the minute I said, <laughs> yeah. I, "Like that's going in." I thought the same thing. Like I, I've made mistakes. I'm like, "Oh, Jonathan will fix that in post." Then I literally hear myself on the recording say, "Jonathan will fix that in post," and he did not. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> Well, the, I think there's a good reason why, because if he edits it out, he's going to make you sound smarter. If he doesn't, he's going to make us sound smarter relative to you. I don't know if I really need editing help there. Like, the, <laughs> <laughs> you guys got this. I have you know, Ryan, I, I did not edit some things together and put it at the end of the show like I was going to last time. <laughs> <laughs> you save me up for another day. Yeah, exactly. It's a thin, thin <laughs> <bit. Wait. laughs>